Welcome back to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This session of Grand Rounds Nation is provided by the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians, or ACOFP. Speaking is Dr. Robert Hasty on the subject of advancements in stroke prevention. So, of course, we get to talk about Elevate INR, and this is the thing that's probably changed the most. In fact, I had to even up, update the, um, the slides on this one as well just because it recently just changed. And the recommendations are if you have the patient with an INR less than 4.5 and they're not bleeding, you just lower or omit the dose. Okay, so 4.5 or less. You don't give them vitamin K. You don't uh, send them to the hospital. You don't omit them. And again, this is out, without bleeding, without uh, uh, trauma. You just lower and admit the dose. Now, how about that higher range, right? That 4.5 to 10. You know, you check their INR and you get one of these machines in your office where you just get the results back uh, from the lab and they have that INR of 6, 7, 8, 9, and they don't have any bleeding and no trauma. What do you do? You omit a dose and you don't give vitamin K and you don't send them to the hospital. So you get a patient with an INR in your practice, no bleeding, no trauma, if INR9, 2012 chest guidelines, you don't give vitamin K and you don't send these patients into the emergency room. This is an outpatient management strategy. And this is a way to save resources. And the ED docs are, are learning about this too. So this is something new to them. So, you know, the, you, know you save them not only the visit, but uh, you're also saving them potentially, you know, someone else doesn't know the new guidelines and, you know, the new science-based guidelines. And of course, if their INR is greater than 10 and they have no significant bleeding, you hold the warfarin therapy and you give oral vitamin K. It doesn't tell you exactly what you should be giving them. I think most of us in this room would probably go with like 5 to 10 milligrams of PO vitamin K in this scenario. Um, but uh, that's kind of up to, to clinical judgment, you know, how much you give them in this scenario. But I think most of us give 10. I, I would give 10 in this case. Let's go to an increased INR and serious life-threatening bleeding, because I know there's a, a ton of docs in this room that, that practice um, hospital-based medicine, or, or, or go to the hospital, I should say. And if they have an elevated INR, and they have serious or life-threatening bleeding, intracranial hemorrhage, GI bleed, etc., you're going to not only hold the, the warfarin, but you're going to give them 5 to 10 milligrams IV vitamin K by slow infusion. And people say, oh, wait, wait, I heard there's anaphylaxis. Yeah. There's potential anaphylaxis, but there's like potential side effects of like every medication that we give. And you're talking about a potential side effect that's probably less than like 1%. It's definitely less than 5%. You know, it's arguable if it's less than 1%. But you're going to withhold therapy in a patient with life-threatening bleeding and elevated INR because of potential of anaphylaxis? No way. No reasonable person would do that, right? So you want to give vitamin K, uh, 5 to 10 milligrams by slow IV infusion, and, you know, we used to talk about, you know, using a lot of frozen plasma and all these other things. The new recommendation, you actually give prothrombin complex concentrate over fresh frozen plasma. That's the new recommendation. So, yeah, obviously, if you can't, uh, um, you know, if you don't have it available, the four-component uh, prothrombin complex concentrate or the PCC in your institution, you know, fresh frozen plasma look, works great. Remember, it's got a three- to five-hour half-life. The INR of fresh frozen plasma is like 1.3. If you ever check the INR of fresh frozen plasma, it's like 1.3. So you're never going to – first of all, your goal should be like less than 1.5 or, or less. Um, but you should never have a goal less than 1.3 because that's what fresh frozen plasma is. So if you have, ever have to do it. But prothrombin complex concentrate – 
is the way to go nowadays. 2C recommendation to use that over fresh frozen plasma in the setting of uh, elevated INR and life-threatening bleeding. I'll just quickly talk about vitamin K. Uh, one medication I want you to take out of your armamentarium, and this is old data, is sub-Q vitamin K. Sub-Q vitamin K is like so old school now, we shouldn't be using it. The problem is it doesn't correct very fast. If you give a patient sub-Q vitamin K, and they start with an average INR in this particular study of 8.5, even after eight hours, they're like at eight, even at 24 hours, they're only down to five. I mean, clearly, clearly not as good as uh, IV vitamin K. And I would make the argument, you give them sub-Q, you know, I mean, not only the studies, but anecdotally, I think we've all had to try to re-anticoagulate those patients at some point. They're a disaster to try to re-anticoagulate after somebody gave them sub-Q vitamin K. So please, don't do it to your patient. Don't do it to your colleagues that have to, to, to deal with these folks afterwards. I mean, the way to go, it's either IV or PO. Never sub-Q. And we should probably never do IM either because of the risk of hematomas, right? So PO or IV vitamin K is the way to go. And by the way, uh, you know, they always talk about this 10 milligrams of IV vitamin K. That's the published recommendation guidelines. Well, I went back and I pulled the original article that actually showed how much INR you get lowered with uh, the, I, the IV vitamin K 10 milligrams. They're in, it was two in the study. They had two patients, and they make these recommendation guidelines based upon two patients. But anyway, in the two patients, uh, one patient, I think, had an INR lowering of like four. The other had a patient INR lowering of six. So I'm going to report to you that the average is about five. Uh, so of the end of two. So, so let's talk about novel anticoagulants. The bigotran... You know, it's not dabigatran, it's dabigatran. That's the way the, the, uh, the official uh, pronunciation, at least the, the company that came up with this, calls it. Uh, it's called Pradaxa. I think most of you know that. Many of you have patients on it at this point. The idea is it has no PTINR monitoring, no food-drug interactions, and it seems to be like this exciting medication, right? It was based upon the RELY trial. Uh, the RELY trial is partly what got it uh, FDA approval for atrial fibrillation, and it showed that if the 150 milligram dosage, which you take twice a day, it actually showed a reduction uh, in cardiovascular events, or I'm sorry, uh, stroke events in patients with atrial fibrillation, uh, p-value less than 0.001% for superiority. It showed about the same risk of bleeding, uh, major bleeding, maybe a slight risk of uh, GI bleeding, but the FDA approved it based upon the information that, hey, you know, we're going to have reduction events, but maybe a little bit more GI bleeding. And then we have problems with, you know, how do you figure out the patient's on it? Because it's a direct thrombin inhibitor, right? Thrombin is factor two, right, if you remember your, your um, physiology. And um, so we have a problem because, you know, the, the bigotran doesn't increase your INR too much. So what do you look at to try to figure out if the patient has elevated INR? Well, typically the PTT is like two times if the dibigotran is therapeutic. It's going to be normal. If it's normal, you suggest that they don't really have any dibigotran on board. So that's kind of nice. Patients come in with trauma, you can just order a PTT. You're going to expect the PTT be elevated in a patient uh, on dibigotran if they're actually taking it. Uh, you can also do something called the thrombin time. A normal level excludes the use of dibigotran. I think most of your laboratories can do thrombin times. Uh, the Ekron clotting times, the ECT, is usually not available in most institutions, but that's another test you could do. But I'd stick to the PTT. Everybody has that. Everybody has trauma time. Those two tests will give you some really, really good information, two points of data, whether or not the patient's actually taken the dibigotran. Very important if you have a patient with trauma or bleeding. So it's 150 twice a day. You start it as soon as the, the patient's INR is less than two. 
Um, and by the way, if you have a patient that needs to go for surgery, the magic number is 24 hours if they have normal renal function. Typically start zero to two hours before the next dose. So say for instance, you have that patient on warfarin, you're trying to get them over to it. You wait till the INR is less than two. So that first reading of 1.9 or 1.8 or whatever, uh, that's the day you start uh, uh, the, uh, the bigotran. It's 150 twice a day. Uh, you cut it in half. If they have a creatinine clearance less than uh, 30, if it's less than 15, you don't give it to them. The guidelines from CHEST uh, actually came out and they actually suggest that that's a superior product to warfarin um, uh, when, when applicable. Now, the problem is they missed some of the data because it went to press prior to some of the most recent data came out, which I think most of you in this room know about. So there's a 12 to 17-hour half-life. There's no antidote for dabigatran. You know, you typically use the standard medications, uh, fresh frozen plasma, PCC has been used in a white paper, factor 7A. But I'm going to tell you, out of this list, fresh frozen plasma is the way to go. Uh, here is um, reversal of rivaroxaban and dabigatran. This came out in circulation uh, last year. If you actually look at dabigatran, if you give them prothrombin complex concentrate, it does nothing. So if they have bleeding and they're on dabigatran, I would recommend fresh frozen plasma as, uh, you know, as your uh, replacement agent. Uh, rivaroxaban actually does um, replace fairly easily. Uh, some folks talk about this four-hour dialysis session. You know, people say, okay, well, dial you're going to dialyze the dabigatran. Well, if you actually look at the rely published data, you only get a 4% removal of dibigatran, plus you got to put a dialysis catheter in a patient that's fully anticoagulated. Not a lot of fun. And they say, oh, well, there was a 68% reduction in one study. Yes, it was one study. How many patients? I believe it was six patients. Six patients with ESRD, who they actually gave 50 milligrams, which is not the FDA-approved dosage of dibigatran to, and dialyzed them uh, shortly after giving them the dibigatran, and they showed a 68% reduction uh, in levels on one nephrology. One nephrologist at one dialysis center on six patients is not enough for me to do that to patients. 4% removed, I mean, that's like a rounding error. So uh, this is something I don't see and I, when I talk to trauma surgeons. I, I just don't get it why anybody would actually use uh, dialysis for these folks. But anyway, that's, that's it. I think most of you probably saw this, the FDA warning about these, uh, this post-marketing uh, events of serious bleeding. Um, it's actually significantly more than they expected from the initial clinical trials. Uh, if you actually look at the Bigatran, this is the one that all the drug reps, I'm sorry, all the malpractice attorneys jumped on. And this actually showed that if you combine all the major trials together, 30,000 patients over, you had a statistic increase in cardiovascular events uh, in patients on dibigatran or Pradaxa. Uh, this is something that uh, the detail rep probably won't give you that package insert on, right? But, you know, this is something that came out in Archives Internal Medicine, and this is the reason why right now, if you go to Google and you Google Pradaxa, not the first thing that pops up, but the second ad that pops up is the SteinbergLawFirm.com. And uh, so I went and I visited the SteinbergLawFirm.com, and uh, they want to protect all these patients on uh, Predaxa, it says. I'll quickly talk about Rivaroxaban. Rivaroxaban is a synthetic factor 10A inhibitor. You know, as full disclosure, uh, my university got some research money uh, f because I was the principal investigator in the Rocket AF trial. Um, I got zero money personally. I didn't get any bonuses or anything. Uh, the school got some, uh, some money, and I, th I don't think even paid for the... Uh, um, paid for the uh, person that, uh, that coordinates the studies with me. And um, they actually did give me a nice plaque. So I got a, a nice little glass plaque you know, sitting on my desk behind a whole bunch of junk. So that's, that's my only uh, reimbursement, I can tell you, on River Roxaban. But according to the Rocket AF study, it showed a p-value of less than 0.001% for non-inferiority. So it wasn't looking for superiority. But if you look at non-inferiority, it seemed to be just as good as, uh, 
as warfarin. And you could make the argument, you know, you know, overall event rate was lower, but it wasn't powered to actually look for uh, statistical significant differences. If you look at intracranial hemorrhage, there was a significant reduction in intracranial hemorrhage in patients on rivaroxaban compared to warfarin, and all, as well as uh, fatal bleeding. So, you know, to me, I mean, I think this drug, which is once-a-day drug, I think the data is actually is a little superior, um, you know, for this particular agent. It got approved for DVT prophylaxis last year in July, but then it got FDA approved for uh, stroke prophylaxis in patients with atrial fibrillation in November. And um, the, the same thing as the bigotran. It has no INR monitoring, no food drug interactions. Uh, it's once daily dosing. And yeah, it's going to cost your patients probably like 2500 bucks a year. Uh, I'll just quickly mention this. I know Dr. Uh, Krolik uh, talked uh, a fair amount about stents last year, but I do want to mention with atrial fibrillation patients, the first three to six months after they get their stents, they're going to be on triple therapy. Yes, this makes official guideline recommendation because we never knew what to do with these folks before, and anecdotally, we're just throwing them on all three things, right? Official guideline recommendations, you put them on warfarin plus aspirin plus clopidogrel, and you're going to keep them on there for the first three to six months after that stent is deployed. Then, after that first three to six months, for the remainder of the time that they're on dual antiplatelet therapy, you're actually going to put them on just warfarin and clopidogrel. And then after the 12 months, you're just going to go back to warfarin. So again, the magic number is triple therapy for that first three to six months. Then, you're, then it's just warfarin plus clopidogrel for, uh, until the 12 months is in. And after the 12 months, it's warfarin. Uh, those, those are official guidelines from CHEST. ACS and atrial fibrillation, if you have that patient with acute coronary syndrome and atrial fibrillation, the official recommendation is 12 months of vitamin K antagonist therapy plus an antiplatelet. I'll br briefly mention about bridging, because bridging comes up all the time. You have all these patients going for surgery. You know, do we put them on low molecular weight heparin to bridge them until the surgery? And the answer is, uh, if they have mechanical valve or atrial fibrillation, or if they have a DVT or PE, and they're at high risk, we recommend for bridging. If they're at lowest risk, they have a you know, CHAD score of zero, you, know, you don't have to do anything. If they're an intermediate risk, maybe. Maybe. But at high risk, for sure, you've got to put them on low molecular weight heparin and bridge them. And uh, if you're going to do it, low molecular weight heparin is preferred over throwing them in the hospital on unfractionated heparin. Um, perioperative management of EKL, I'll just tell you a quick couple things here. You want to stop the warfarin five days before the surgery. You want to resume it at 12 to 24 hours after the surgery. And if the INR is greater than 1.5, you want to um, go ahead and give them the vitamin K one to two milligrams uh, prior to uh, surgery, get their INR down to a therapeutic thing so the patient can go on to surgery. So, you know, and they you know, it's easy. It's fairly easy to do. They, they sell a 2.5 uh, vitamin K, so you just cut it in half. That's what I do. And I'll leave you with one last question. And so this question is, what do we do in patients with atrial fibrillation? And the response is, when you have patients with atrial, fibril or, I'm sorry, atrial flutter, how do we change the management? You don't. Nowadays, the, the subject has been very, very well studied. You treat them exactly the same as any patient with atrial fibrillation as far as anticoagulation goes. So the anticoagulation uh, remains the same. So with that being said, it's been a very big pleasure for me to present today, and thank you so much for having me. Thanks. 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 You've been listening to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of the nation's best Grand Rounds. 
Until then, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks for listening.